Hello and welcome to Ahead of the Curve. This is your host, Jonathan Gellner, and thank you so much for joining us today. On today's show, we have on Brett McCabe, who is a clinical and sports psychologist. Brett has worked with professional athletes, including 12 plus PGA and LPGA tour members whose rankings have reached number one in the world. He has also been a consultant and sports psychologist for the University of Alabama Athletic Department, working with all teams and coaching staffs. And he has also been a featured speaker to numerous Fortune 500 companies and organizations. So on the show today, we dive deep into his experiences at LSU playing for Skip Bertman. We go over practical mental game strategies and we discuss, quote, how to win awareness, which includes classroom sessions and how we can coach in-game strategy to players. Here is Brett McCabe. Brett, welcome to the show. Hey, thanks for having me. Absolutely. And as I was mentioning a little while ago with you, I love your podcast and I definitely recommend our listeners to go check that out. I will put a link down in the show notes for your website where they can find all the information about you. But I also would love it if you could go into your baseball background for our listeners and just kind of tell them why you decided to get into coaching. Yeah, it's a good way to look at it about coaching because um, it was always something that I wanted to do. Um, and I can always see myself uh, on a baseball diamond coaching athletes. I mean, I, I think throughout my playing career at LSU, um, I thought that was always something that I would have enjoyed doing. Um, but this gave me this gave me a lot of opportunity to um, to blend it. So I played baseball at LSU. Uh, I was fortunate enough to play for uh, Skip and Coach Bertman is just you know we know in the baseball world the legend that he is, and he's a legend for a lot of reasons. And and his his process, his system of of developing players, and his in game coaching and and all those things, you know, when when you go to LSU, one of the things that he would always say is, by the time you leave here, whether you're a one-year player or a five-year player like I was, um, you're going to have a PhD in baseball because I'm not only going to teach you what to do, I'm going to teach you why you do it. And I'm going to teach you to think ahead. I'm going to teach you to find the differential and, and to see things from a deeper perspective. And um, he, he had a concept called how to win awareness, which was the ability of a player to see beyond the game, to see why things happen and to get the jump. And, and I thought that was always really cool. And so when I went to LSU, I was a, I was not a recruited kid. Um, I was a preferred walk on. I wasn't approached until April of my senior year of my only year playing varsity baseball. I was a late bloomer. I grew really late. Um, I matured late. I was always about two years behind. I was the youngest kid in my class. And then I you add that to a late uh, maturation process. So, um, I was a I was a lover of the game. My dad played college baseball, and and so I loved the game. But we moved a lot. My dad was in the military, so I was never on like the legacy teams. I was always on the teams that my dad coached when he retired from the Air Force, and he was real big on blending players and teaching kids the game. And he would keep charts about how many innings players played. He wanted to make sure it was fair and equitable. And so I was never on the teams that won a lot. I would always play on the all-star teams. And we moved to Baton Rouge in eighth grade. Um, you know, I, I had to kind of um, integrate myself into the baseball culture there. And and uh, 
I only played one year of varsity baseball. I started my senior year as the third pitcher. Um, I would do relief and I loved relieving. Um, but one of our starting pitchers ended up getting sick and missed the year. He had some underlying health conditions. And I moved into the second role. Our top pitcher ended up going to Mississippi State. And in April of my senior year, my you know, Skip called and said, look, I'd really be interested in you coming on and as a preferred walk-on. Um, I think you're two or three years behind. And if I can bury you on the roster, I think in your third year, you'll be something. You'll really be good. And if you do everything I'm asking you to do and you you put yourself around the best players here, um, you know, I, I think you could really learn the game and, and be a force to reckon with. And he was exactly right. The, the only wrinkle was I got injured in my third year, right when I was having my breakthrough, right before the season started. And um, it rocked me. Um, I had been a part of one national cha- championship team and was around seven major league pitchers. And, um, you know, I thought it, I thought it was going to happen for me. And it started happening. And I, I loved the game. The game was fun. The game was free. The game was loose. The game was easy. And then all of a sudden, it got taken away from me. And what seemed like a really small injury, it was biceps tendonitis and an impingement in my shoulder. I probably tore, tore my labrum, you know, talking to surgeons now. But the uh, it, it just completely changed the way that I went about the game. Um, I started pitching to recover what I had. My mechanics changed. Every time I pitched, people were telling me what was wrong with my mechanics. The season started. I got left behind, essentially, um, because you can't fix a guy who's spiraling. And uh, we ended up winning the national title that year as well. I was, you know, part of everything. I just didn't play much. And came back for my junior year and and my fourth year, and uh, I, I was at rock bottom. I mean, I hated everything about the game. I The game was now punishing again. It was difficult. It was frustrating. It was I was in the middle of what I call suckville. I mean, it just, everything sucked. My perspective was bad. I wanted to be done. I wanted to finish up. And I remember telling my roommate, it was a guy by the name of Todd Walker, who was a college baseball hall of famer and played a long time in the major leagues. Yeah. Very good player. (laughs) I remember him saying, I kept telling him, I said, look, I'm just going to graduate with my senior class and move on. He goes, no, you're not. You're going to figure out a way. And I ended up figuring out a way and the figuring out a way was, um, you know, I started working on the mental side of the game and I had to take what I had and had to use the, the weapons that I had, despite the fact that I'd lost velocity. And, and I want people to understand, I mean, look, I, I'm not, I wasn't throwing 95 miles an hour. I, I literally was throwing 83, 85 miles an hour as a right-handed pitcher in the SEC, but I had developed a pretty nice little slider and Skip was um, able to use me in a very unique way. Um, and I ended up figuring out some stuff and led the team in appearances, um, my junior and senior year throwing 83 to 85 miles an hour. Um, and I could get out of any jam there was, I started one game. I hated it. I hated everything about starting. I liked relieving always did. Um, and, and it got me into psychology and that nature of turning to the mental side, it wasn't about motivational quotes. It wasn't about rah, rah. It was about stop protecting. It was about go for it. Like what's the worst that's going to happen? Like I'd played my entire career trying not to mess up with the idea that if I didn't mess up, then it would probably, then I could be aggressive. Then I could go for what I wanted. Then I could push the envelope. Then I could actually pitch with intention. 
And when I started working on the mental side of the game, it was like, what's the worst that's going to happen? You're already doing it. Like you're already creating the worst. I mean, you're already doing it, trying not to do it. So why don't we go out there with the attitude of trying to strike everybody out? And my strikeout ratio was insane for a guy who threw not as hard as I did. Now, like I said, I could throw my slider as hard as I could throw my fastball. Um, and it had a pretty nice little break on it. And, um, and so I could, you know, I'd go out there with the attitude. I didn't care who you were. I didn't care if you were, you know, JD drew. I didn't care if you were, um, you know, Mark Bellhorn. I didn't care, you know, who you were. I was going after you and I'd strike you out. And if not, you know, if I walked you, I'd strike out the next guy. And that led me to wanting to become a psychologist. So after my fourth year, um, I, uh, I switched my major to psychology, you know, pretty late switch. I knew nothing about the field of psychology, nothing. Um, I wasn't a big fan of some of the basic, some of the traditional, what we call mental coaching stuff, you know, the, some of the traditional ways that we coach and teach. And still to this day, I kind of see things differently, Mm -hmm. but I wanted to be a clinician and I wanted to, um, I wanted to get, I wanted to go for the degree and the training that was the hardest to do. Um, that had the hot, the most difficulty getting in grad school, the most difficulty, the highest, you know, degree of training type of thing and not knock another field. I, that was just what I wanted to do. And, and to me, that was being a clinician and I wanted to train, I wanted to understand both sides of the spectrum. Um, you know, I, I think it's important if you want to work with players to perform at their best, you got to deal with play with people in life that are at their worst and in the hardest point. And, uh, that's what I did. And so I switched my major, got very fortunate to get into grad school, um, grad school in the clinical programs, particularly at LSU where I had to go because my wife was in nursing school. Um, I mean, you're, there are 300 to 500 applicants and they take eight and across the country and it's very competitive. And I got fortunate enough to get into the school where I did my undergrad. Um, and I'm sure some LSU baseball connections help that. Um, not against who, you know, and, uh, and then I, I did my training and I, I didn't, I really didn't spend much time in the athletic circles at that point. I spent a lot of time doing clinical work with, um, uh, what we call physical medicine and rehabilitation, like chronic pain centers, healthcare centers, people who are recovering from spinal cord injuries, neuropsychology, um, uh, working in patients in ICU and helping them manage health conditions. And then did my internship at Brown Medical School up in Rhode Island, which is a one-year internship and uh, the psychology program up there. And then I actually um, finished. That was after 9-11. Job market wasn't great. I remember I called Coach Bertman, who was the AD at LSU at the time. And I said, yo, Skip, uh, you need to put somebody on staff in your athletic department. I mean, I'm telling you, this is coming. And he's like, yeah, you know, I just can't afford that salary. And at the time, the salary was pennies compared to what they are now. And uh, so I went and worked in the pharmaceutical industry for eight years. Um, I did that because I wanted to, I wanted to have an income. I had two kids, but I also um, I wanted to understand performance from a different angle. And I moved to uh, uh, Birmingham um, after about a year and a half after graduation, um, and I was fortunate enough to start working with professional golfers pretty quickly. It was not. I wasn't. I didn't hang out a shingle. I didn't do anything like that. I just had people start reaching out to me and a couple of players did well and started having some pretty prominent success. And, and so I just took a lot of the things that Skip taught me uh, being firsthand right in the middle of it and applied it to what they were going through. And 
one thing led to another and here I am today. Oh, I love that and, and thank you for sharing. But I, I do wanna rewind a little bit if you don't mind and it's something that I think is really, really important. And it seemed to me like the turning point in your career was when you got knocked down and you started to try some different things that weren't necessarily to your strengths and you were trying to figure out who you were but then you started to have success whenever you finally just gave in and said okay how do i use what i have and get outs can you tell us a little bit about what that was like well it was i wanted to play i mean i grew up we moved to baton rouge in eighth grade and i watched the emergence of lsu baseball and and players, you know, the Ben McDonald's and the Russ Springer's and the Curtis Oscanics and the guys like that who are major league pitchers come through LSU and, and um, you know, we're, we're so good and, and I wanted to be a part of that program so bad. And I didn't want to be a kid that was there and, you know, had the could have been story, right? You know, we all have those stories in our head, don't we? Like, I, it could have done this. It could have done that. It, it, nobody right. ever says – man, you know, it's just the way it, the chips fall. You know, we all have the story in our head of if one break would have happened or if somebody would have done this. And, you know, I missed my my second year with mono. I missed six weeks of the season. I wasn't going to play that year. I was, I had already, you know, spit the bit for that year. I wasn't good enough, but still, you know, you look back and I, I mean, I had the story in my head. I mean, I could have, I could have told everybody and walked and gone forward with my career and been that guy who, Oh, it was just, it was close. And I just didn't want to be that guy. I had the opportunity to transfer. Um, the head assistant coach at LSU after my third year, Smoke Laval, took the job at Northeast Louisiana and he called and he said, look, you know, you would be one of our aces up here. You may never play at LSU. And, uh, but I, I did not want to be the guy who transferred. Now, I understand that some people want to do that and that's fine. To me, I either wanted to play at LSU or I wasn't going to play at all but I really just couldn't accept that. Like I really could not accept that. And so I, once I understood what I needed to do and stop playing safe and stop playing protective. And it was, it was almost a stubbornness of if it's me against you and it's mano a mano, I'm going to, I'm going to beat you somehow. Like you're better than me. I know that. Okay. And I was fine playing with the chip on my shoulder. In fact, I had to have a chip on my shoulder. And I knew you were better than me. And I knew that you probably looked at my velocity and my throwing motion, which was herky-jerky and all the other stuff, and thought, how's this guy playing at LSU? And I would tell myself that story. Like, I remember, you know, I remember the last inning I pitched in college. We were getting knocked out by Rice. Um, in a regional and um, getting knocked out in a regional at LSU just doesn't happen in the Skip Berman era. I mean, it may happen in different eras now, but um, it doesn't happen. It didn't happen at Skip with Skip. Okay. We weren't trained in, and, you know, Skip never lost championship games. I mean, you just, and there was an amazing stat that somebody put together when he got to a championship game. I think he was undefeated throughout his career. I think it was like 23 or 24. No, like you just didn't lose. But this was before we got to the championship game. And, we had run into a buzzsaw at Rice. We didn't know who they were. Cal State Fullerton came into our thing. We were we my senior year. We were number one in the country midway through the year, and we went to Ole Miss and we got a case of norovirus, which um, is a vomit virus, and it ransacked our team and it knocked us off our pedestal. 
and I'm not saying it's an excuse, but it it, it happened. You know, like, I mean, we had guys puking on buses and the, during games. I mean, it was terrible. It was a stand by me. If you've ever seen the movie Stand by Me, when everybody's puking at the pie eating contest, that was our baseball program. I lost like, and I was skinny oh. at the time. I lost 13 or 14 pounds in three days. Um, so it just really rocked us. And we went from being number one in the country with the top pitching staff and everything to losing five of the last six weekends we had in the SEC. Um, we just lost, it just, we just lost our mojo. So we go into the regional and they send us Cal State Fullerton, Cal State Fullerton, Mark Kotze, and a bunch of other just superstars, right? Kirk Sarloos. And I mean, it was just crazy. I think he was on that team. And, um, and so we, we, we're playing. Well, they sent us as the third seed, a team from Houston called Rice. And we didn't know who they were. I mean, we knew, right. We knew the university, but we didn't know. We knew that Jose Cruz's son, who was a uh, outfielder for the Houston Astros, uh, had retired, was his son played Jose Cruz jr. But we didn't know that their first baseman was a kid by the name of Lance Berkman. We didn't know that they had a third baseman by the name of Mark Quinn, who I think was the AL rookie of the year one year for the Kansas city Royals. Um, they had a closer by the name of Matt Anderson. who was a number one pick in the draft. We didn't know who they were. Okay. I mean, they come in and they just trounce us. So my last inning I pitched, I pitched against, uh, Jose Berkman and Quinn. And I remember standing up there, we were getting trounced. And Skip put me in to finish up because it was my swan song type of thing. And I remember sitting there and like, this is the greatest reminder of my mindset shift. I'm going to play against three superstars. And I ended up striking out the side. And I remember thinking, God, it's got to suck for you. Like, I am not that good. But my mindset was I wanted to just go against you. And yeah, you're right. I mean, it took me to be at the worst part of my career where I hated the game. I hated everything about it. In a 12-month period, I went from standing on top of the world to having nothing and feeling like I couldn't get my throwing motion to work. My timing was off. My velocity had dropped dramatically. I went from being uh, in the conversation to being just finish out, you know, and, and, and I was like... I can remember when it happened and there were a lot of moments in there. It wasn't like a breakthrough moment. It was maybe fight moments where it was like fight for this and go into that vulnerability. And I think that was the best thing for me was learning how to get into the vulnerability and, and realize I was okay. Um, what was the worst that was going to happen? I was going to suck. I'd been doing that already. I mean, you know, I, I was sucking already. It was, there was, there was nothing fancy about it. Um, you know, I, and, and it just got to a point where it was like, I was tired of it and I was willing to go. I mean, I, I just, I got to a point where I just couldn't accept that anymore. And, and, you know, I was fortunate enough to pitch in the college world series in 94. And, and I wish I could say I was on a team that was at the bottom of a dog pile and having been the main contributor, I wasn't after my senior year. Um, they went back to back in 96 to 97, that team that with the Warren Morris home run, if you've ever watched SEC network or, you know, the story about the kid who hit the home run, the bottom, that was my entire team. Like mm -hmm. the team that went on after our 94 team won the national title in 96, only a few players left that team and they brought in a couple pieces. Players just got on a run that year. And, and, you know, it was really cool to watch and, and, I just, I think that's for so many of us, to your point, we have those inflection moments. We have those spark moments that happen and we have to be open and willing to have them happen or else we're going to miss them. Okay. So, so let's rewind a little bit. 
Skip didn't lose championships. Why is that? And I really don't think he did. Um, if I think if I go back to the stats, if he got to a regional, an SEC, or a national title, I think he was undefeated. Um, Skip didn't coach more in the heat of the moment. All right. One of the things that happens to coaches, and we saw this with our competitors and some great coaches, is that when the pressure got high, they felt they had to do more. Skip did the opposite. Skip did more. His practice, Every practice was planned. Every practice was on time. Every practice was organized. He had years and years of his practice plans in, in folders. We followed this. Uh, listen, when we go to the College World Series, our first practice, we knew it was the hardest practice of the year. Mm-hmm. Every other team is out there in shorts. They've got their video cameras. They're celebrating. They're playing. You know, as he used to say, it's they get to the World Series, it's grab ass time, right? No, not for us. We would go to the field, and then we'd go to a high school field, and we'd practice, and the pitchers would go on a three- or four-mile run. We'd be in meetings all the time. We would be breaking down stuff. He would isolate us. I mean, we would spend time with family, but it wasn't a vacation. It was a it was a work thing. He used to tell a story of when Jimmy Johnson got the job with the Dallas Cowboys. He divor- he got a divorce. And then at, in his first year in the um, Super Bowl, his parents called and said, where's our tickets? He said, this isn't no vacation. You can watch it at home. And that was Skip's point. Like, and, and he knew he was always two or three innings ahead of everybody. He really was. But he, he would watch the games and, and he would do less. Like he would call every pitch we, caught, we threw during the course of the season. You could always shake him off. You just had to tell him why. And until he'd understand your rhythm. And, you know, he, would, he was always there. He, wasn't, he was not an overcoacher. The only year that he overcoached was my senior year, and he, he would tell you that. He panicked and overcoached. When we got sick, he tried to manufacture some stuff, and, and he probably knew that we were not as good as we thought we were, and he was trying to fix it, and it, it, it stung him. But he he get in the heat of the moment, and he used to say, guys, listen, you know, I've coached more games against you know this coach than you've played in your life, essentially. I know their tendencies. I know when they want to hit and run. I know when they want to do things. Just trust me. Let me call the game and I'll put you in a position to win. And then in the heat of the moment, see, you've already graduated. You, you've already, he'd call graduation when you break through the pressure barrier during the course of the season. You've already graduated. So now it's time to trust your instincts. See, I think coaches forget that a lot of times there's a 10 to 15% element of playing intuition. It's what he called how to win awareness. Okay. And that's when a player may adapt a little bit. But it's not like they're breaking the system. If you understand the system of which you play in, you understand a down angle and a ball going in the dirt, you take your secondary lead and you anticipate it and you're off going to second. You're not waiting to see if the ball gets away from the catcher. You know, how to win awareness is understanding as an outfielder that the hitter against your pitcher is late constantly and you can see that every pitch is on the outer third of the plate and they're late. So you shade towards the off field a little bit and you take two steps in so that when a ball goes in the gap, you're two steps closer. You know, that those are the things that he did. So when it came down to the heat of the moment, and then there was one other factor, and this is the greatest swag move ever. And I think I want to say it was when we were playing Southern Cal my junior year to go to the College World Series. They were loaded. That We were the one seed. They were the two seed. It was a 96-degree day in South Louisiana, what a home field advantage it was. And – um 
our place was rocking with Kunas's out there ready to go. And, you know, they're tight and we're loose and whatever. And we're getting ready to go out on the field. And he pulls our team together. It wasn't big about rah-rah speeches or anything. It was just, this is the way it's going to be. This is what's going to happen. This is how it's going to go. And he looked at us and goes, but guys, they don't have me in their dugout. Now let's go get them. <laughs> okay. His idea was, okay, they were good, but he was better. And he trained us to be antagonists. He trained us to be, like, he didn't care if you had facial hair. He didn't care if your spikes were clean. He cared if you could, um, if you understood, like we didn't have 57 bunt coverages, right? Mm -hmm. We didn't have that stuff. Like he did a clinic with us in, in Alabama at the Alabama Baseball Coach Association, and I was speaking at it. And, um, and so I introduced him, and then he's in the audience, and he's in his normal way, and he's 82 now. So he, he's, he blends the years a little bit when he talks, but it's funny. Um, but he's up there, and he says, guys, how many of you teach as a coach that when a player hits a, you know, gets, has a, beats out a ground ball and, and runs through first base, breaks it down, looks to their right, right, to see if the ball's overthrown? Every coach in their hand raises their hands. He says, how many of you have actually won a game with that? I think one or two guys raise their hand. He said, see, I taught that, but I also taught my kids how to hit three-run home runs. That's why I won national titles. <laughs> and so his thing was focus on the things that really matter, right? We do things as coaches because it's like, well, it's what we're supposed to do. Right? So it's like what we're supposed to do. Versus, listen, you know, if, if you can put – the best nine on the field, not the nine best players, but the best nine who maybe your left fielder doesn't have the big power. Maybe that left fielder's dad is not the one who makes all, you know, donates all the money to your program type of thing. Um, maybe that left fielder though is the one that can get to first to third on a ground ball to center field because he anticipated and took the jump. Um, that's what he believed in is that he was going to play. It didn't matter what your scholarship level was. If you could do the little things, if you could, and I think about that 96 team that won the national title, Patrick Coogan, who got the victory and then started the 97 national title game was a preferred walk on Warren Morris is a preferred walk on Jason Williams. Who's the all time hit leader at LSU was a preferred walk on, um, Brad Wilson, who got the double just lead off the inning was a preferred walk on, um, you know, you could name it, right? Because he put players on the program that wanted to contribute and do what it took. It was about getting it done. So why did he win championship games? Because he had kids that just would do whatever it took to get it done. It wasn't about them. It was about the purple and gold and, the, and your brothers in the dugout. How to win awareness. I love that. So how do we do a better job of teaching it? Well, first thing you do is don't be afraid to have meetings with your kids. Right. And talk to him. We had a, we had what was called the yellow book. And, you know, I give Brian Kane a lot of credit. He went and met with Skip about 10 years ago and published all of his, you know, stories and all of his lessons. And some of those I was actually part of finding. Um, Cause I remember one practice, Skip sent me to the library to find motivational stories. Right. But, you know, coaches have to have organized practice and then, you have to develop practice times where there's struggle in there. And, and great practice should have about 15% of struggle involved with it. Um, it's not just going through the motions and having BP, right, and taking some ground balls. It's 
you know, you can have a practice or players can practice themselves too. It's there's nothing wrong with players hitting fungos to each other. Yes. It sucks for the fielders. If the kid doesn't know how to hit a fungo, but guess what? You teach the kid how to hit a fungo. Like you actually teach them how to do it. Um, and, and you, you, you take practice time and you work on situations and you work on, you know, when a kid makes a mistake, you explain why that happened and why that matters versus, you know, you know, passing it on. And then, you know, if you've got a young freshman or sophomore who doesn't look talented, I think one of the worst things that we do in all the sports right now is we try to early identify talent. We all suck at it. Okay. We all suck at predicting the freshman who becomes a senior, right? Don't you want the kid that found a way? Don't you want the kid who did whatever it took? Don't write them off, teach them. Maybe, you know, maybe they're a late bloomer. Um, I don't, I, I just hate this idea that we recruit kids as freshmen and sophomores in high school to predict how they're going to be as juniors in college. I mean, are you kidding me? Show me the kid that figures it out. And so teach them that, sit down with them, put them in, you know, uh, Tim Corbin, who I think is the best coach in college baseball now um, at Vanderbilt. And yes, he's got a budget and he, yes, he's got the access. And yes, he's got the horses. Okay. You didn't start out that way. Remember that. But you know, he does a lot of classroom time. He's not afraid to sit up there and put scenarios up on, on a board and talk about it. And he said, well, yeah, those are Vanderbilt kids. They're real smart. Okay. Well, great. He's a teacher. He's teaching them. And so it's even in high school, even in travel ball, there's nothing wrong with pulling it out and saying, Hey guys, listen, we're gonna take 30 minutes at the start of practice today. We're gonna talk about some scenarios, you know, uh, a pitcher starting, you know, is, 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 pre-pitch awareness and what are you looking to do? I mean, I've, I've got a kid in college who's just a stud that I work with and to listen to how he talks down, you know, talks about breaking down a pitcher. It's just genius because he's like, I don't care if you throw me a breaking ball or a, a fastball first pitch. I'm looking fastball. I can get my arms extended on anything and I don't really need to predict. Well, that's the way he does it. And so if you sit and you put kids in and, and it's not just talking about stuff like go online and find videos of Derek Jeter's cuts, you know, how he would cut, um, in, in the relays and stuff like that and put them up there and teach kids, they will learn. And that's the, how to win awareness is, is you, then you put them out on the field and then you put them in those scenarios and you don't expect them to do it the first time, but you talk to them. Like you literally say, okay, what did you see here? What were you thinking here? Okay, they're not going to see what you see. You've got extraordinary more experiences than they have. You know, the mind the mind has a, an aspect that it mirrors. It sees what it mirrors. Okay, it sees things. So when when Bobby is watching Jack go through the cuts, he needs to see himself in that scenario, and try to get one step ahead. Um, you know, what do you teach your kids that are sitting on the bench? What do you teach them to watch? Or are you just saying to sit there? And one of my pet peeves with coaching is if you tell a kid, hey, look, you're not playing right now. I, one of my pet peeves is coaches don't tell players why they're not playing. They don't yeah. give them a lot of information because they're afraid they're going to upset them. Tell them. Mm -hmm. You're not, you know, right now, you know, you struggle on getting around, you know, getting the barrel out on somebody who's throwing really hard. And it's hard for me to trust you in the heat of the moment. And, uh, you know, I can trust you as a person. Uh, you get my point. And I need you to do this, this, and this. Well, what happens if that kid does that, that, and that, and then comes back and you still don't play him? 
that kid ain't ever going to trust you again. Okay. You probably because you forgot what you told them. Okay. But if you lay them out a, a developmental plan and you show them exactly what they need to do and you say, look, I can't guarantee that's going to get you to start, but it's going to put you in the conversation. That kid comes back and does it. Then it's like, okay, this kid's doing something to want to be in the heat of the moment. And that's how you develop how to win awareness because that kid wants to be out there. He's looking for his angle. Uh, you know, we, I think we're so fascinated by metrics and I've seen this in the golf world. We're so fascinated by kids that can hit it 320 off the tee. We're so fascinated that a kid can take three crow hops, throw it up into the top of a backstop and the radar gun says 97. Okay. Yes. That shows arm speed. Great. Can he throw a one Oh fastball over the outer third of a plate and get it over for a strike? Like I get the whole metric thing. I get the, you know, lift and lock and rip it. I get that. I'm not an old school guy saying, oh, you played the game the way I played the game. We got a bunt guy. Mm-hmm. I'm not saying, it. but my God, can people get a bunt down? Right? Can a pitcher take a ball with runners at first and second and nobody out and not throw it to third if they get a ground ball? They need to throw it to second to get the double play. Okay, go ahead. <laughs> I love it. But going into your story again, I, I think you have an awesome perspective of getting to coach with or getting coached by maybe the greatest college baseball coach of all time, and Skip Bertman. You work with the Alabama Athletic Department, so maybe the greatest college football coach of all time, and Nick Saban, and obviously an awesome athletic department. And I know you think very highly, and I think very highly of Pat Murphy as well as one of the best college softball coaches in the country. But what as far as mental game strategy can we steal from you and implement? I know that, that you obviously work with some of the best coaches in the country and they all do a fantastic job of this, but how can we as coaches from the outside looking in and coaches who want to get better at this, get better at it? And, and I will say this, I think Patrick Murphy's on the Mount Rushmore of coaches in his sport. Oh, he's awesome. um, Love that. And, and, you know, I, I think he could coach a men's baseball team with no problem and never miss a beat. Oh, absolutely. Um, um and, you know, that's why I love the guy with everything. I mean, I think he's just so talented at what he does. And, and uh, you know, one of the things I always look at great coaches is could they take over a business and run it efficiently? There's not a mm-hmm. doubt in my mind Murph could run a Fortune 100 company. Like, having 100%. worked in those companies, um, he's he's got the chops. Um, the, you know, what are some of the elements that you can do? Um, I think first and foremost is having a written down player performance plan a developmental plan for every single player you work with. Okay. Where it's written down, it's communicated amongst your coaches. Okay. That doesn't take any time out of your practice. Okay. That, you know, I think a couple other things is practice starts on time. I mean, starts on time and it finishes on time. Um, if you don't post your practice schedule, players are spending their entire time wondering what practice is going to be and when's it going to end. Schedule it post it, let them see it. That's simple. Um, I think you got to have, I think you got to break down, you know, in today's world, um, you, you don't be afraid to assume that they need to take care of some of their basics away from the game. Um, you know, I think when you can have the expectation of, look, there's nothing wrong with our batting cage being open and you can come in here and throw and whatever you need to do. Um, when I've got the entire team together, there are certain things that we need to work on. Um, you know, I think some of the things that you could do is, um, 
don't be afraid to get them in the, in the dirt a little bit. Don't be afraid to get them in the muck. Um, don't be afraid to create confusion. I think a lot of times as coaches, we want our players to leave confident. I don't want them to leave practice necessarily confident. I want them to leave practice prepared, prepared for the what if. I want them to leave, um, uh, I want them to leave a game confident that they learned something in the, in the chaos. So the only way to get that is to have a little bit of that chaos in practice. Um, practice is not, I think a lot of times we see players trying to make or coaches trying to make practice a confidence building session. It's not, it's a friction contest. It's, it's how we sharpen a knife. And that's, you know, we got to have that friction of what it takes to succeed. And, and you also have to give them opportunities to have breakthroughs and, and slow it down. So, I mean, if we're talking a two hour practice and we're going to take 10 minutes to work on the mental side, then what we're actually saying is that the mental side's only what? 10% importance. Mm-hmm. Right. No, it's a heck of a lot more. So if you integrate it, like make it a part of everything that you do, make it, you know, m- Listen, if you're going to work on, if you're going to do the traditional batting practice, right? You know, two buns, eight fastballs, two breaking balls types of things. If, let's say you're going to throw like that. Okay. The bunting is not just going through the motions. Okay. And nor, and, and it's also not on fastballs. It's not also, you know, home run derby either. That's how you integrate the, everybody steps into the box with a purpose. What's the purpose of this round? Okay. You know, make sure the bunts are done the right way and make sure that on the breaking balls that whoever's throwing it is doing it in a way that it's not, you know, it's, they've got to hit it to the opposite field or whatever. Like, don't be afraid to mix things up a little bit. Um, in the heat of the moment, that's when players will make that change. You know, they'll handle it. No, that's great. And, one of the things I really respect about you is is there is a difference, is you admit that there's a difference with the 21st century athlete, as with most generations. And you believe that this generation is extremely anxious. But I think that, that you've mentioned a couple of different times that we need to put them under pressure and and give them different strategies and teach them how to deal with it. So, you know, just to be succinct, how do we do a better job of coaching this generation? Yeah, I mean, you got a couple things. One is, I would have said this generation was more anxious before we had the 2020 year we've had. Sure. Okay. This generation, and it's not, we got to be really careful. It's so easy to spit on this generation and be like, oh, they don't like, you know, no, 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 no. It's the most technologically savvy generation we've ever seen. I mean, can you imagine if you and me and our generation had to do homeschooling like this? I mean, that was before 2020. Yeah, for sure. Okay. This generation, though, their anxiety level is because their expectation of great is so skewed. They can get on social media and they can look at a 17-year-old kid in California and be like, that's the standard, right? I mean, I had a kid come in and tell me one day, um, you know, I want to – I shouldn't struggle. I mean, if I want to be like a, you know, Mike Trout, I I mean, I just shouldn't struggle. I'm like, Mike Trout is an outlier. I mean, 
Serena Williams mm-hmm. is an outlier. Michael Phelps is an outlier. Tiger Woods is not is an outlier. Those we can strive to try to get, but we also don't want to have. I don't know about you, but I don't want to grow up with a household that those some of those people grew up in. Okay, there were sacrifices that had to be made yeah, there. Absolutely not. Uh, um, and so they their expectation is that they that that learning should happen immediately. Because if they don't know an answer, hey, Siri, um, you know, hey, Alexa, you know, they, they don't even look for the answer. They just find the answer. Now, that's awesome. But their problem solving skills need to be done faster because that's almost like a, a, a rite of passage, a passage or rite of evidence for them is that how fast they can find the answer, and how fast they can work through it, you know. Um, and And parents have unrealistic expectations, too, you know. I had a kid that I was working with yesterday, great kid. And I said, how'd I go? Oh, these are the three things. If I fix these, I'll be great. I'm like, well, what did you do well? Literally took him a while to figure it out. But his, he and his dad are sitting there just destroying what his performance was to try to get to fix all that. And I'm like, do you really think fixing all that is the answer? Well, yeah. I mean, if I can just eliminate those, I'm like, but you still have offense like we, right. it, it, we're not in this generation that's what it is and and i think parents and and this having been a parent anyway, i am a parent of of two kids that are done playing college uh, high school sports and um we have access to experts we have online we can study i mean I, my professional golfers a lot of them get off of instagram because they get caught going down rabbit holes of watching swings I mean, they're inundated with information. Nobody shows you how they got there. You know, if you think about the, the success world, right? What do you do? You, you rent a car, you rent like a Lamborghini or Ferrari or Bentley, and you put it out in front of a rented house and you tout your sales program that can sell the world, right? It's all freaking fake. Okay, all these reality shows are fake. and But to our kids... The TikTok generation, the Instagram generation, you see everybody's perfect. You never saw how they got there. Mm-hmm. And so as a result, they see this fact that they are falling short all the time. And so as a result, there's a lot of anxiety of what if. Uh, can you imagine, I don't know how old you are, but can you imagine trying to be a freshman in high school? Okay playing in in all these showcases to try to get the attention of scouts and college recruiters as a freshman in high school. Uh, that'd be tough. Yeah. I mean, I, I, I don't understand the showcase game. Like this, okay, this is the old 48-year-old Brett. Don't understand that. Like I went to a showcase for softball and I was standing next to one of the assistant coaches who I love in Alabama in softball. And the game ended after three and they walked across the thing. And I was like, what happened? She goes, oh yeah, it's a showcase. I was like, so nobody won? Uh, no. She, she's like, I don't get it either. Okay. Like, why not just have a game? Like play. Maybe it's a three inning game. But what are we teaching showcases? We're teaching people how to swing for the fences and have perfect. We're not teaching them how to move a runner over. Right. We're not teaching them how, you know. And so as a result, perfect is the only answer. And I'm not saying we're changing the game. I'm not knocking travel ball. I mean, travel balls filled a great guy. God, I would have been all about it. You know, our travel ball was all stars. 
right? I mean, that's what it was. If you finished the season, then you got to travel and made it on the all-star teams. Um, I would have never, I mean, I would have played year round. I was the first kid at the ballpark. I, I loved I And during our regionals at LSU, I'd always go watch the early game and then go to lunch and come back and get ready to play. Mm-hmm. Like I loved everything about it. And, and, but I think we have to understand that for these kids is got to give them, got to give them things tangible to work on. And you got a level set for them. You got to tell sure. them it's okay. And, and tell them about kids that you've, you've worked with in the past and, and give them real life examples of this is what a kid did. And this is a kid that was in the same position as you. And then they worked their way up and that those are important. I know you have to run pretty quick, but you mentioned parents and uh, to go more in depth, how do we do a better job of quote unquote dealing with parents? You know, you being a dad of two former high school kids and I heard you speak on the subject a few months ago and you mainly talk about getting them involved. So can you speak on that a little bit? Parents are tough, but you're, you're dealing with their most valuable assets in their life. Okay. And if we got to remember that the most important things in their life are what we're working with. And for many times as coaches, the parents have gotten successful in their careers overcoming challenges and the challenge that they have with their most valuable asset may be the lack of playing time and they're going to do something to push through that and that just happens to be you (laughs) i mean and they're going to not stop because they want to make sure that they have the absolute success for what matters with the person that's in front of them and in their mind very few parents can look at something and say oh yeah, I can see that my kid's just not good enough. They think that if they just got more opportunities, the kid will rise up in the heat of the moment. So some of this is education, okay? And, you know, they're they're like Lenny of mice and men. They love their bunnies so much they crush them, okay? It, it comes from love. It really does. Um, but it's not, um, you know, it, it's, not, it's not bad intention. It's just the fact that many times as coaches – we are the um, we are the person who's in their way. Mm-hmm. So what I would suggest is that you you keep an active communication with co- with parents. If you see them as the enemy, they will see you as the enemy. And guess what? They will organize an army against you. Um, and me saying this, I also understand that if I say this, there's probably going to be somebody who's going to say, "Well, I've tried that. And I got burned." I get that. There are unique circumstances, but I would keep a regular weekly email system. If a, you know, uh, if, a, if a, you know, with updates what, with what's going on. Okay. Um, and you know, Hey, look, this is what we're doing. I wouldn't give updates of like individual players, but I wouldn't be afraid to send an email to each parent about how their kids doing this week or this month with tangible information. Um, I think also give them things to do and like, Hey, you know, we're going to have a meeting and this is some things that we need to get in place. I need y'all's help on this, this, and this. And then what happens is they're busy. They're involved. They feel like a part of the program. And I think it's important as play as coaches that we not create a wall with our parents. They will work around it. 
They will go under it, around it, over it. They'll go to the people above you. They'll do all that. I mean, trust me, you guys know that too. What I want you to understand about parents is that they can be, make them a part of it. Give them the rules of engagement. Tell them, look, if your kid's not playing, they're not happy. Let's first start off with coming to meet with me. But I mean, let's also be realistic. If you're a 45 year old man coaching and you're coaching a 14 year old kid, that is a major age (laughs) imbalance. What kid is going to really come in there and say, coach, I don't understand why I'm not playing. That's, that's not, I mean, that that's hard. That's really difficult for a kid to do. So it's okay to say, you know, I'm happy to share this with your parents and talk about it. You know, if you're in college and you're coaching, it's different, but you know, to ask a 14 year old kid to come in there and have a conversation, resolve the issue first. A lot of times those kids are scared to death of you because you're authority. And so you've got to teach them how to have that. And you've got to work with the parents to educate them, make them a part of your program. Don't make them the adversary. Um, I'm not asking you them, you do you to make them your, um, your cheerleaders, but don't be afraid of them and don't, you know, listen, get ahead of it. Most of the time, if the parents realize you're human, just like they are, it's okay to say, look, I screwed up in this game. Like, I love it when a coach makes that statement, guys, listen, I made a strategic decision. It backfired. You know, I'm not showing weakness by saying that. What I'm saying is I make mistakes too. You know, I, I, I think in the public, you never throw a player under the bus. You always, always, always take the blame. And if victory, you always give the credit to players and you should always find players that maybe people aren't paying attention to, um, and give them some credit. Um, you know, something that happened in the second inning, you know, that was a great move. That was a play. And you make sure the parents see that too. Um, and I think at the same time too, is that, you know, you, you, within the organization, if you communicate with parents, I, I've never seen a kid who a parent is educated on their plan by a coach. Most of the time the parent may say, well, I don't agree with that, but at least we have a plan. They're going to get to work on that plan. If you don't tell them anything, like if you don't tell them why they're not playing, I mean, that's one of the biggest complaints that I see when players come see me privately. I don't understand why I'm not playing. And I call the coach and you know they'll say, well, I mean, you know, this or that. It's kind of ambiguous. Well, of course that kid's going to be frustrated. No kid wants to hear they're not good enough, but they can deal with it. No kid wants to come to that own conclusion on their own because they're not playing. And they don't know why. Great advice. And again, Brett, I I appreciate you coming on the show. And I want to be the first to thank you for that. But I also want to give you the opportunity to share. So I'm going to mute my mic and, and open it up for you. And is there anything else that you'd like to tell our listeners before you go? Yeah, you know, one of the things that I've really come to understand in the last couple of years is the role of us as coaches as catalysts. You know, we can all look back in our life and we we know of a coach that impacted us. We know a coach that um, that that changed our life. Uh, I know those that are in my life. Um, there are people who took a risk on us. There are people who were honest with us maybe for the first time in our lives. They, they were honest with us. Um, there was somebody who spent extra time with us. There's somebody who showed us the game from a different perspective. And it's what I call being a catalyst. And one of the things that we did, Brett Basham, who's in my office as a team member of mine, uh, was a all SEC catcher at, uh, at Ole Miss, um, and worked in leadership for five years at the university of Alabama athletic department. Now has been with me for a couple of years. 
Um, he and I came up with a program called Catalyst School Live, which is to help coaches become better catalysts. And it's a, a fantastic program. Um, it, it's on my website. Check it out. It's $20 a month. It's four live trainings a month um, with me in you know direct um, video conference style live. Everyone's archived. If you're in class, can't teach, can't be there. They're all archived. Every one I've ever done is online. And so you join for 20 bucks a month. It's there. I mean, it, it's, I'm not hiding anything. I'm not playing any games. There's no additional charges for it. Um, 20 bucks a month. Um, it's, it goes through the psychological reasons of how we coach, understanding your players, understanding the different players, understanding their psychological fingerprint, understanding how to develop your own process to create your coaching binder. That's your legacy. You know, how to leave a legacy, how to be a spark for other people, how to deal with conflict, how to be accountable yourself, you know, to make sure that we walk the walk that we say we need to walk. You know, every coach needs a coach. Um, every coach need mentor needs mentors. And um, we have a, a great group of coaches across all different perspectives. And you're going to hear some things about a summit coming up here pretty soon where we're going to bring coaches from all different backgrounds, sports together in a, in a, in a video platform. Um, and coach, I think it's important for coaches to learn how golf coaches coach. I think it's important for swim coaches to study soccer coaches and baseball. If you're only studying the coaches that you know, then you're not learning how to expand. And that's what Catalyst School Live is. And if it wasn't for the game of baseball, I wouldn't be doing what I'm doing here. It was a bond with me and my dad. That was fantastic. Um, I can remember sitting in, in our office at, at growing up in the house and eating roasted peanuts and listening to Mike Shannon with St. Louis Cardinal games. Um, baseball's brilliant to me. It allowed me to meet a president and Ted Williams and Joe DiMaggio at the White House. It allowed me to do a lot of things. And I have brothers for life because of that. And and I was fortunate enough to be with the greatest baseball coach to ever coach the game in college and Skip Bertman. And, and for that, I've, um, I'm very fortunate. And I want us to all have that opportunity to to do that for others. So it was an honor to be here today. I appreciate it game has meant so much to me and I hope I give back to the game the way it needs to be done. Thank you for listening to Ahead of the Curve. You can subscribe on your favorite podcast platform, which can include Apple Podcasts, Google, Spotify, Stitcher, or YouTube. And if you're enjoying the podcast, please share it on social media to help get the word out. Once again, thank you for joining us.